Amen. Good morning, everyone. As you, uh, as you take your seats, uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. We're getting toward the very end of our study in Hebrews. The title of our series is Jesus is Better, and we titled it that because that's what the book of Hebrews is about. Jesus is better than, and the, the book of Hebrews basically just walks through a whole bunch of ways in which Jesus is better than everything in life. And, um, and so today we're going to talk about Jesus, the better pastor. Jesus, the better pastor. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9. And then I'm going to skip a few verses. And then we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. You may think, well, that's not a good idea to skip verses. But I promise we'll come back to them. Pastor Colby is actually going to come back to those verses that I'm going to skip next week. The verses we're going to talk about today are sort of parentheses around the text Pastor Colby will speak about next week. Um, but I want to I say by way of sort of setting up our talk today that um, our church, from the very beginning, we, we set out to do a few things. We wanted to do a few things well, and that meant the neglect of a lot of other things. But the few things we wanted to do well, we wanted to uh, plant churches, um, which you likely see reflected in our church. But we also wanted to, to just plainly teach the Bible. We just wanted to walk through verse by verse, say what God says, and explain the Bible to people. Because we, we thought that the Bible is God's word, and what could we do to add to its greatness or its power? Really nothing. So we should just explain it. We should walk through it and, and talk about it with people. And so we've been a church that's desired to just kind of walk through the word very simply week after week now for 16 years. Um, we like to allow God to determine our talking points. That's another way of saying what I just said. Like, we could decide, hey, we want to talk about this week, this this week, or this next week, or we think our congregation really needs this or that. Um, and there's a little of that that goes on, but really, mainly what's happening around here is we're saying, what's God's word saying to us next? Um, if, we, if everything were up to me, you know, if I were going, going with my gut or my intuition, probably what would happen is we'd talk about church planting every single Sunday, because that's the thing I really like to talk about. I get most excited about that. And if it were up to Pastor Colby, we'd probably talk about all the ways in which discipleship is like fly fishing. You know, there'd be, there'd be uh, you know, a lot of sermons about that. If we got to sort of focus and have our way on exactly what we thought should be said. But we don't do that. Instead, we just walk verse by verse through the Bible, um, the books of the Bible. And it, it's a way of us saying, we came here to hear from God, not from men. It's a way of saying, we want to know what God is saying to his people uh, it doesn't really matter what people are saying to people uh, because we kind of hear that all week long, don't we? I mean, we're bombarded with all kinds of thoughts about what people say about people. Um, and I'm sort of tired of it by the time I get here on Sunday mornings and I'm ready to hear from the Lord. So that's why we do what we do. One of the side effects to allowing the Word of God to set our talking points or set our agenda is that periodically we get to a topic that's not so pleasant to talk about. And we have to address it, even though we really don't want to. It's sort of a grab bag idea. You know, you like reach in each week, and what's the verse this week? Uh, we could be talking about concubines, or we could be talking about, you know, you never know what you're, you're going to be talking about. It's sort of exciting. It's like the old days of TV. When you picked up the remote, you turned it on, you didn't know what was going to be there. And you just watched whatever was there. Uh, my kids don't know anything about that. Um, and so, so that's sort of what we do here is we just look to the Word and we talk about whatever's there. And so today we've pulled something out of the grab bag. We've turned on the remote to find um, this very awkward conversation for a pastor to have, and that is uh, the subject of obedience and submission to your pastors. This would be like a husband leading the devotion with his wife on submission to your husbands, you know? Uh, it's not exactly the one you want to go to uh, if you want to promote peace and unity. But um, so obedience and submission to pastors is the subject of today um, in the passage that we come up to in Hebrews chapter 13. You can probably imagine me and Pastor Colby uh, sitting around a table a few weeks ago discussing um, how we would handle this. And we pull this one out of the grab bag, and Pastor Colby says, I'm not doing that one. And I say, well, I'm not doing it. And we sort of discuss back and forth who we could pawn it off to. Maybe Jamie could do it. We'll pass it off to somebody else. 
Um, uh, and you see how all that ended. So uh, here I am. I'm kidding, sort of. Uh, but we're here. We're people of the Word. We're here, and this is what the Word says, so we're ready, right? Whatever it says, we're ready. Also, today, in an attempt to communicate clearly and simply, we're going to focus on Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 9, and verses 19 through 17, because they're on the same subject. Remember, I said they form a parenthesis around um, another text. And so, in other words, we're not going to talk about verses 10 through 16. It's not because these verses don't matter or they're not important, but it's because uh, we think they matter a lot, and they're very important, and they need proper attention. And because of that, Pastor Colby's going to give attention to them next week. Um, and I'm going to focus on the subject at hand, which is uh, leadership in God's church. Not because those verses don't matter, but because they really matter. The conversation about leadership that we're going to look at today, um, like I said, forms a parenthesis around those things. So let's go. We're going to look at Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 9. And then after I finish verse 9, I'm just going to go right to 17 and read uh, down through 19. It says this, Remember your leaders... And those who spoke the word of God consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited to those who have been devoted to them. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that uh, we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that you may be restored, I may be restored to you sooner. Lord Jesus, I ask for you to help me explain these verses uh, properly. God, I pray that I would depict your intention for your people as I talk about these verses. I pray like I do always when I come to your word to talk to your people about your word. I pray that you would be our instructor today. I would simply illuminate, point people in the right direction, but God, you would teach us today. Lord, this amazing thing happens when we're with you and your word and your people and your spirit where things get taught to us that are never said out loud in the room. That's amazing, Lord. Teach us personally today in ways that are specific to us. God, could you apply your word to our hearts, use your spirit to illuminate areas of sin in our lives, and give us a tenderness and a willingness to obey you, whatever it is you call us to do, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. So in these six verses, verses 7 through 9 and verses 17 through 19, these six verses, there are five clear instructions for Christians regarding how they are to relate to those in spiritual leadership. Five clear instructions in these six verses about how Christians are supposed to relate to pastoral or elder leaders in God's church. The first instruction is given right at the top there in verse 7. Look what it says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life. So we're to remember and consider. So what I want you to see in verse 7 is that Christians are to have leaders in mind as models of the Christian life. Christians are to have leaders in mind as models of the Christian life. The Christian life in many ways is about modeled behavior. In fact, you may or may not know that the word Christian itself means little Christ. Every Christian is supposed to model their lives after Jesus. So Jesus is the hero. We are the action figure. Jesus is the the object. We are the plastic depiction. He is the true hero of our faith, and for us to be little Christ is simply to say we remind people of the real thing, but we're not the real thing. We are, uh, we are in, uh, in, in the previous chapter, uh, uh, right before this one, in, in chapter 12, we hear from uh, the writer of Hebrews, he says that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who himself looks to the Father for his 
his, the, way, the way he should live. Uh, Jesus said in uh, John 5, he said, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself, but he can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So understand there's this progression that takes place in modeled behavior in the Christian life where we model the, the uh, example set by our pastoral leaders, and our pastoral leaders, rightly, model the example set by Christ Jesus himself, and Christ Jesus himself only does what the Father is doing. And so, in essence, all of us are really attempting to live God's life, to live the life that God wants for us, but we have these progressively closer models that get close to us to leave us without excuse as we look to the ultimate Savior. And the great thing about this is there's total transparency. So it's not like we look up to leaders and that's all we can see. No, we get to see beyond the leader to Jesus himself. We're reading the same playbook that Pastor Colby's reading. We get to see if he's not living in accordance with the kind of teaching that we see in the Scripture. And, and, and so this is this progression for us that allows us to see uh, in vivid color, in technicolor, if you will, the uh, depiction of what it means to live the, a life of, the life of Christ. So the Christian life is a life of modeled behavior because without modeled behavior and without living examples, it's really difficult to obey concepts. Consider how difficult it would be for you to walk with Jesus, to obey God, to follow God, if all we had was a list of instructions from God. I mean, just, just think about if, if our Bible is just full of instructions from God and never examples about how people lived that out. Just imagine if in your Christian life you lived in such an isolated way that you never saw other Christians live out their Christian life. And you were only forced to, to sort of uh, hear the commands of God and, and figure out how to work those out on your own. It would be much, much more difficult than it is. But we do. We have this opportunity to see the Christian life, the life of Christ, lived out in the manner of living of others. And it's so helpful. You know, we, we don't just have to read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We also get to read about Abraham's trust in the Lord uh, when, it, uh, when God called him to make a sacrifice of his son Isaac. You know, we learn about trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, but doesn't it become a lot more vivid when we think about how that was applied in Abraham's life? I mean, it's powerful to observe Abraham's trust in the Lord, but when it comes to the sacrifice of his son Isaac, it's really powerful for us to see his obedience in that area. It's helpful for us to read, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, but boy, isn't even more powerful for us to observe Joseph, Joseph as he humbled himself, willingly served a pagan king, and then was exalted by that king to be promoted for the rescue of his own family. I mean, we get to see that God's principle played out in the life of God's people, and it becomes a, 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 a kindling of faith in our own lives. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying the same is true when it comes to your faith. You are aided in your obedience to God on the example of those ahead of you or in charge of you who are also obedient to God. Also, remember that the instruction comes to us right after the entire uh, chapter uh, that we call the roll call of faith in, in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, where we just get this whole chapter of depictions of people who lived the life of faith and how it worked out for them, and it's meant to be an inspiration to us so that we can trust in God. Right? So we get to look to our leaders, our leaders of old, you know, leaders, our, our ancestors, those who obeyed God uh, a long time ago, and we get to look to flesh and blood leaders right here in our own church and, and learn how to live the Christian life by looking at the examples of their lives. And this is a gift that God's given to us, that we don't have to just have instructions, but we get to have vivid depictions of the Christian life lived out in front of us. I just look at Hebrews chapter 11 at the end of that and just reading that end section. It says, by faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouth of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign enemies to flight. They received back their dead by resurrection. They were tortured, refusing to accept release they might, that they might rise again to a new and better life. 
That is the example of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 that I don't know about you, but spurs me on to want to live a more faithful life for God. So, Christians are to have leaders in mind as models when they're living the Christian life. We're supposed to, we're supposed to see a command from God and, and have that, man, uh, that command animated in our minds by thinking of the way someone else fulfilled that command in our observation. Second, let's look at verse 8. Christians aren't just supposed to look to leaders in the church for, uh, as models, but we're supposed to actually imitate their faith. Look what it says in verse 8. At the end of verse 8, it says, imitate their faith. It's very direct. It's not, we don't have to like ponder about what it might mean or what he's trying to say to us. It's, it's, it's just right there. Imitate their faith. What we're supposed to do is look to godly people in front of us, leaders, and we're supposed to have faith like they have faith. We're supposed to model the faith that they show to us. If we were to have a microphone in this room today and just set it up like maybe one on each side and allow everyone to come up and talk about the ways in which their faith has been strengthened or developed, uh, my suspicion is what we'd hear is story after story after story of men and women who, uh, who inspired or modeled faith that gave us courage to obey God. Since it turns out that I'm actually the only one with a microphone in this room, I'm going to tell you my own stories and you don't get to do it today, maybe another day. Since, uh, since that's what I'm going to do today, I'm going to tell you just a couple quick stories. Number one, uh, I'm going to tell you about a man in my life named Danny Williams. A few of you guys know Danny. You've, he's been around here. He's preached here a few times. But Danny was my childhood pastor growing up. In my family, I come from sort of a non-Christian family that wasn't really committed to, to the Lord. We just lived in this community. And, and Danny came to this dead church, this church, it was the, actually the church that Billy Graham was baptized and ordained in, and it had, it had dwindled down to just a few people. And as a young man, he came and, and took the responsibility for that church. He started evangelizing people in my small hometown, and he started winning people to Christ, and the church started growing, and he started challenging those people to go out to reach their neighbors and friends, and all this was happening while I was a young boy growing up in my town, not thinking anything about God, and my parents not thinking anything about God. My household was kind of messed up in a lot of ways, and, and this was going on in my, in my town, but I didn't know anything about it. And, and Danny began to uh, lead that church, and the church began to grow, and people began to come to faith in Christ because of his tireless efforts to share the gospel with other people. And over and over again, uh, people converted and became part of the church and began to build the snowball effect of that church's ministry in our town until eventually that church reached my family. Um, they, they came and they shared the gospel with my family. They actually got some men from the church together and our, our roof was leaking and they got some men from the church together. They bought the supplies and they re-roofed our house. It's one of the ways that they, they started uh, their relationship with us. They just served us and loved us and they, they just reached out to my family in an incredible way. I remember just being in the hospital with my mom and people from the just an endless string of people from the church coming to spend time with my mom. Like, why are these people here? What are they doing? Why do they care? And they, 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 they cared because they wanted me to know Christ. They wanted my mom and dad to know Christ. And, and they started making a difference in my family. And although you have never met Danny, Danny walked alongside me. And he became my pastor and my friend and my mentor. And he, uh, he taught me that Christians should share the gospel with other people, win them to faith. And then if there's not a church for them to go to, they should just make churches for them to go to. And that's why you, why you sit in this church today. Because he inspired me to plant this church. And I came here and did it. And so, and so I, I just want you to know that even though you've never met Danny and you didn't observe his obedience in the way that I did and he didn't inspire you, that many of you, by his obedience modeled to me, have been recipients of the very real blessing that he bestowed on me. I can also tell you that even in our own church, I think about our own church right now, and I just think about the people who make up our church, I'm consistently mimicking the behavior of other pastors in our church. We have a deep bench of pastors around here, and that's a great blessing for our church. Uh, we have uh, 
We have uh, pastoral families like the Creeds who have been in ministry for a really long time. We have um, lay pastors who are serving in all kinds of components in our church. And, uh, and we have uh, vocational pastors like Pastor Colby. We have a, a deep bench of pastors around here, and that is a huge blessing to our church. I just think about the ways that those pastors regularly stir me to faith. Um, I'm regularly striving to be more prayerful and more patient because of my observation of Ryan Pugh, and he's raising seven boys. You guys may or may not know. He's got a demanding job, and, uh, and he, uh, in all of that, he's doing all that stuff, and at the same time, he finds margin to minister to and love and, and strive for our church to be a prayerful place. That's amazing. I am constantly spurred on by that. I, I uh, think of this week, Joseph Kraft. He's here. Joe and Kraft and I had breakfast together this week, and uh, this guy is constantly challenging me to be bold and clear when it comes to trusting God's word. Like, I always want to nuance things. I was like, ah, what about this? And what about that? And he's not, no, it should be like this. He's so crystal clear. He so trusts God's word. We had breakfast this week. I told him about a problem we were having. And uh, we got in the car and left away. He kind of nodded and smiled. And we got in the car and left away. He called me on the way, uh, like five minutes out. And he said, hey, here's what we should do. And he just like, just delivered it to me like a hot pizza. It was great. I mean, I was like, this is absolutely what we should do. And it was so, it's so good and so clear. I'm daily encouraged to love and honor my wife by watching Pastor Ted deal with Janine, in, uh, deal with, relate to Janine. <laughs> I'm sorry, I hope they're not here. <laughs> relate to Janine. If you guys don't know them, you should really get to know them, especially if you have any marital strain at all. These guys are amazing. I mean, he talks about her in such an honoring and loving way. Uh, uh, this will be embarrassing for him, but I asked him, you know, we were, we were in a, a, a residency meeting, I asked him to tell me about you know, how their, their relationship's like, if they fight very much. And she said, he said, actually, we've never had a fight. They've been married like, you know, 35 years or whatever. Never had a fight. I was like, you're lying. I don't believe you one bit, you know. And he's like, they've been, they've been married all this time and they've never really had a fight. It's just such a great example. And every time I'm around Ted, I want to love my wife better. Isn't that cool? Like God puts us in this Petri dish where we get to not just hear about the faith of the scripture, but we get to see it lived out in the lives of others and it becomes inspirational to us. All of you have stories like this, and this is just to name a few. But here's the thing. The opposite's also true. Christian leaders who fail to model Christ-like behavior distort and obstruct our view of God. So I told you about my pastor, Danny, but Danny was actually the second pastor I got to know at that particular church. The first pastor was another pastor at that same church in the same uh, congregation. And uh, I, I started attending that church, and I was really drawn to this pastor. He, he was charismatic and amazing in many ways. And, and I was a musician, and he was a guitarist and a great guitarist. I'd never seen anybody play as good as he played. And I just wanted to spend time with him. I'm a 15, 16-year-old kid. I want to be around this guy. And he took me under his wing. He started spending time with me. He took me to his house. I spent time with him after school every day. And we just spent a lot of time together. And he really discipled me and helped me grow. And I really, in many ways, wanted to be just like him. I mean, he was a role model to me. Well, one day he comes to my high school, which I go to uh, the Christian high school there, and he comes and he, and he says, hey, after school today, you want to go with me? I got to go on a trip. It's about an hour away. You should ride over with me. And I say, oh, I can't do it today. I got something else going on. I had a, a practice I had to be a part of. I, like, I can't do it. And he says, okay, no problem. So he goes off and does this thing, and then I don't see him for a few days. I, I don't see him, and everybody's acting kind of strange around me. And I, I go home from school. This is like two or three days after this, and I sit down uh, in my house, and my mom uh, pushes the newspaper in front of me, and it's a picture of my, my mentor on the cover of the newspaper getting put into the back of a squad car. And she starts to explain to me that he solicited a prostitute who was actually an undercover police officer on that trip that I was supposed to go on with him. And I was confused, and I was angry, and I had begun to wrestle with a call to ministry and started to think, well, what is this? Like, I, I don't know how to even compute this. And my pastor, Danny, the one I was mentioning, he, he came over to my house. He knocked on my door, and, and he said, I want you to know that God's good even when his people aren't good. And I'll pick up where he left off. And he grabbed me, and he started mentoring me and caring for me and took care of me and helped me grow. And I got to see both the devastation and destruction of a leader who doesn't live a life according to God's ways and his will. And I got to see the blessing of a pastor who did. And my faith was challenged. 
in a very real way, the cost of ministerial failure is the eternal destiny of the very people the Lord has entrusted to our care. Anytime you meet somebody and they say, I don't want anything to do with God, I don't want anything to do with the church because of... There's a story of ministerial failure, a way in which we didn't display the, the glory of God in ministerial work. The Lord actually gave a stern warning to leaders in this way. He said, and whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, this is Jesus, it would be better for him if he had a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea. Wow, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty bold language. It'd actually be better to, uh, to, to have a millstone tied around your neck and you cast it in the middle of the ocean than for you to be a pastor who leads people astray. The duty of the real preacher, of, of the minister of God, is not so much to talk to men about Christ as it is to show men Christ with their own life and work and their being. Men listen not so much to what the man is saying as to what the man is. His life is not an, uh, uh, an argument in words, but it's a demonstration in living. That's William Barclay on this passage of Scripture. Paul says it plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, be imita- an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. You see what he does there? He says, he says don't imitate me because I'm so good. He says, imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. That's what this whole argument is built upon. The pastor, in so much as he is imitating, following, pursuing, loving Jesus, modeling his life after the life of Jesus Christ, is a good representation for us to look to as an example and model of how we should live the Christian life. And so just as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we are to be, as pastors, imitators of Christ, and you are to be imitators of our faith as we imitate Christ. And again, it's a transparent situation. We all get to see every level, and we all get to read all the commands, so we all know when somebody's on base and when somebody's off base. The next thing I want you to see is that Christians are to ignore, this is the third one, Christians are to ignore the seduction of novel teaching. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. Now, Hebrew Christians had a fair share of strange and diverse teachings that this uh, passage was, uh, had in view when it said that. Teachings that were prevalent when this letter originated. Among them was the idea that certain foods or the absence of certain foods on one's diet in one's diet could bring about greater godliness. That's, you see that in Colossians and in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Judaism also taught this idea. You might recognize this from Judaism and even other religions. What the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's telling you and I that our heart will be strengthened by, our Christian lives, our faith will be strengthened by the gospel of grace, not by the foods we put in our mouth or refuse to put in our mouth. This, though, is just an example, the food thing is just an example of the ways that we can become allured, entertained, distracted by what the passage calls diverse and strange teachings. Teachings that are like to us junk food in our spiritual lives. They will only serve to distract us from the meat and vegetables of true grace and faith that we should have primary attention on. They will only distract us. You see, our minds love the new and our minds love the novel. And we get bored pretty quickly with things we already know and have heard before, even if we don't practice them. Do you see why the ministry of a pastor is so important? Because to the pastor belongs the duty and the privilege of serving spiritual food to the congregation. And if week after week we come upon this stage choosing to prioritize things that we think should be discussed, or even worse, choosing to prioritize things we think you want to hear, or things you might be most interested in, to the neglect of God's agenda for our church, this would be like serving Doritos and Pop Rocks to you week after week, 
It might make you happy in the moment, but you would not be nourished. The author is encouraging us as Christians not to stand for this, not to put up with this sort of thing. The author is encouraging us to, uh, to refuse to accept uh, the novel or the tertiary teaching as the primary substance of food in our Christian lives. And to demand that the fundamentals of our faith, the things that are most emphasized in God's Word, are most emphasized in our church. The most frequently discussed matters here are the things nearest to the heart of God. The Apostle Paul warns us similarly. He said, for a time is coming, he's warning a young pastor, by the way, when he says this, Apostle Paul says to a young pastor, a protege, he's teaching, he says, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What ways is this relevant today? Or if that's not powerful enough, Charles Spurgeon commented on it by saying, a time will come that instead of shepherds feeding sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining goats. So Christians are to ignore the seduction of novel teaching. Fourth, Christians are to, and this is the heart of the text, submit joyfully to their pastoral leaders. Verse 17, look, obey your leaders and submit to them. For, what's the reason? They're keeping watch over your souls. The thing that we don't see and kind of don't even know for sure if it's even there. The thing that we naturally kind of put off mind. Not so present to us. We're not really sure. We see the body. We even feel our emotions and experience our emotions. But the soul, it's so abstract. Well, the pastor's job is to look after that. Obey your teachers and your leaders and submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account for those souls. I heard a story about um, a young preacher who was kind of frustrated that his congregation was small. And an old preacher wrote him a letter. This is, this is back in the day of the Puritans. He wrote him a letter. And the old preacher's comment in the letter was, I know you're horrified at the size of your congregation, but trust me, when you stand before your Lord and Savior on the day of judgment, you'll think you had quite enough. Ooh, yeah. All of us who are vain hearts want bigger and bigger congregations. We're just heaping upon ourselves souls in which we're accountable for. You're to submit joyfully to those leaders, though, in so much as they are good leaders and godly leaders, striving to follow the example of Jesus Christ. So the question for you is, are my leaders godly? Are they striving to follow the example of Jesus Christ? Not are they perfect. Not do they always get it right. Not are all their judgments right. But are they striving? And if they are, how can I submit to them? Not because everything they do is perfect, but because they are all infallible. They, because they are all infallible, but because they, not because... Not because they're infallible, because they are accountable, sorry. Uh, they, uh, they're not infallible, they are accountable. So I want you to, I want you to think for just a minute about, um, you remember I told you uh, uh, in the beginning that there are qualifications for pastors in the New Testament. You know, when we look at these, the qualifications for elders and pastors in the New Testament. There's, uh, there's qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, there's qualifications in Titus chapter 1, lists of them actually. And then there's a, a few comments over in 1 Peter chapter 5 also that kind of put all that together. And it gives us like these 26 points. Uh, if you were to take out the duplicates, you, you end up with like 26 of these things that are character qualities that, that are supposed to be present in the life of God's uh, shepherds. And, and so we look down, when we bring on elders to our church, that, those 26 things, those are the 26 things we're looking at. 100%. That's exactly what we want to see. Because that's what God says a shepherd should be. Here's the interesting thing about that list. If you were to look at that list and kind of study it and think about it, there's nothing in that list that elders are commanded to be and do that normal, everyday Christians aren't also commanded to be and do. So here's the thing. Elders are people who actually do what everyone's supposed to do. 
I mean, that, that's it. That's really what it comes down to. So they are, in fact, proficient to be models for the rest of us because they take seriously the Word of God and apply it to their own lives. That's, that's really what an elder's supposed to be. Um, so, interesting thing here, there's this little dichotomy that happens. Christians are commanded in the text we're looking at today to obey those that lead them, the spiritual authorities and pastors in their church that lead them. Christians are commanded to do that. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, one of those places where we're, spent, uh, where we're looking to for the qualifications of elders and pastors, in, in verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Shepherd, this is an instruction to leaders, to pastors, shepherd the flock of God among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you to do it. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not for not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So that's the way pastors are instructed. So get this dichotomy. Christians are instructed to obey their leaders and follow their pastors, and pastors are instructed to humble themselves, to live like Christ, and, and to lay their lives down sacrificially for the people they serve. So unlike the model we might have in our mind of a leader that, that sort of shears the sheep for his own comfort and stability, no, the shepherd of God doesn't do that. The shepherd of God instead lays his life down just like the chief shepherd does to live a life of sacrifice before the people he serves. This is so wonderful. Like what God has done is brilliant. What he did is he said, oh, we want to be like countercultural. We want to be different than the ways of this world. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell I'm going to tell Christians to obey and submit to their leaders, and I'm going to tell leaders to lay their lives down for the Christians. And that's going to create this incredible, uh, this incredible family where both are trying to serve one another. Now let me tell you something that you probably don't know about being a pastor. <clears throat> it's really hard. Really hard. I just, in your mind for just a minute, like, Draw a circle, write the word pastor inside of it. And then think of all the things that you want your pastor to be and all the things you want your pastor to be able to be competent at. And draw a line, write counselor. Draw a line, write excellent theologian. Draw a line, interesting orator. Draw a line, peacemaker. Draw a line, world-class leader, draw a line, family man, spends 40 hours a week with his wife and kids. I mean, you get where I'm going, right? Like, the picture that we have in our mind of pastoral leaders is, is overwhelmingly oppressive for pastoral leaders. It's hard to be a pastor. Really hard. I remember when I was young, looking at pastors and thinking, what a fantastic job. I mean, you get to ramble on and on and on, and there's this captive audience, they have to listen to whatever you say. That's awesome. You get paid to talk to people and to read the Bible and to like go to youth summer camp. I mean, this is awesome. This is the best job ever. You get to just hang out with people. You have to go to work one morning a week. Everything else is free time. Geez, sign me up. I'm in. You know, whatever that is, I'm in. Well, the truth is that, is, that isn't the life of a pastor. Lifeway uh, Christian Resources has a division called Lifeway uh, Research, and they do research for Christian ministry and pastors, and they've done a little bit of research on this question of what's the life of a pastor like. And, uh, and I'm going to just give you some statistics from one of the studies they did. This is uh, 1,250, I think, uh, pastors surveyed. Here's some of, some of the things. This is just a small portion that I chose uh, to, to share with you today. 72% of pastors report working between 55 and 75 hours every week. I heard a pastor um, say this week, um, COVID, during COVID, it's been twice the work for half the fruit. And that's definitely what it feels like. 
84% of pastors feel they're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 80% of those in pastoral ministry uh, say that ministry has negatively affected their families. 80%. 8 out of 10 pastors say, being a pastor has been bad for my family. 65% of pastors feel their family lives in a, quote, glass house, and they fear that they're never going to be good enough to meet the expectations of their members. 78% of pastors report having their vacation and personal time interrupted with ministry duties and ministry expectations. 28% of pastors report having feelings of guilt when they do take time off. 35% of pastors report the demand of the church denies them from spending adequate time with their families. 24% of pastors' families um, resent the church, they say and the effect that the church has on their family. 22% of pastors' spouses report uh, unfair and undue expectations on them. 66% of church members expect a minister uh, and a family to live to a higher moral standard than themselves. 53% of pastors report that seminary did nothing to prepare them for ministry. 90% of pastors report the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be like when they entered ministry. 95% of pastors report not praying daily or even regularly with their spouse. 57% of pastors believe they don't receive a livable wage. Another 57% of pastors uh, uh, are unable to pay all of their bills on a month-to-month basis. 53% of pastors are concerned about the future financial stability of their family. 75% of pastors report significant stress, a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry career. 80% of pastors and 84% of pastor spouses feel unqualified and discouraged in their role in ministry. 52% of pastors feel overworked, that they can't meet the church's unrealistic expectations. 54% of pastors find the role of pastor to be overwhelming. 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner in the last year. 80% expect conflict in the next year. <laughs> wow, optimistic bunch, aren't they? <laughs> 75% of pastors report spending four to five hours a week in what they would call needless meetings. 27% of pastors report not having anyone to turn to in a crisis situation. 57% of pastors feel fulfilled but discouraged, stressed, and fatigued. Over 50% of pastors are unhealthy, overweight, do not exercise. The profession of pastor on a list of professions is near the bottom from all those surveyed, the most of most respected professions. It's just above the entry for used car salesmen. 71% of pastors, or 71% of churches have no plan for their pastor to receive a periodic sabbatical. One out of every 10 pastors will actually retire as a pastor. One out of every 10 pastors will actually retire as a pastor. In fact, James warns us, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach are judged with a stricter standard. So I want to just take a pause here for just a minute and apply this to us in particular as a church. Now, unlike most churches that I uh, interact with, uh, I can say with complete honesty and sincerity that we have a great group of pastors, a godly group of pastors. We have um, uh, eight or seven voca uh, bivocational or, or volunteer pastors, uh, including myself and uh, lots of other people that do lots and lots of ministry in this congregation. We have one full-time vocational elder pastor in Colby. And, um, and not many churches can say that they have a group of godly men that are respected and trusted. And we certainly, many churches can't say they have a pastor who now has been there July 1st, Colby and Annie will celebrate 10 years at Pillar. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, not, not many churches can say they've had a pastor for 10 years. In fact, the average duration of a pastor in North America is 18 months. So we are incredibly blessed. And so that we don't contribute to these things being true in Colby and Annie's life, we started a conversation among the elders about how we can be a blessing to Colby and Annie. So before the early service this morning, they didn't know anything about this conversation, but our elders have sort of been strategizing and in cahoots, and we've got two ideas about how our congregation can be a blessing to the Garmins in this year. One of them is we're going to send them on a, what I hope will be a fantastic vacation this summer. Um, they, uh, what we're going to do is um, we're going to, starting today and going through July 1st, we're going to collect an offering. And whatever comes in from that offering, we're going to use to send them on vacation. So if you guys give enough for us to put them in a Motel 6 in Stafford, we will do that. <laughs> we will do that. Um, we could even use discount codes if you've got any. Uh, but if more comes in and we could send them to Israel or on a fly fishing trip to Montana or something like that that we think they would really love, we'll do that. We want to bless them. We want them to know that we love them, we care about them, we appreciate the ways in which they sacrificially, sacrificially serve our congregation. And then secondly, we uh, are going to uh, ask them to, require them to, slash, uh, go on a sabbatical um, sometime in this coming year. Um, two months uh, of uh, the operational rhythm totally relieved of them. Not, no email, no leading people. Uh, hopefully, the people here will be able to re re uh, refrain themselves from uh, uh, letting them be one of those statistics of the pastors get interrupted on vacation, and uh, we'll just let them kind of rest and recharge and rejuvenate for a little bit of time as a way of saying to them, we appreciate so much the way they have sacrificially served our congregation for so long, and in hopes that we can get another 10 or 20 years out of them in ministry here. So, on the giving portal on our website, um, there's a, a, a new list there, a new item there called Garmin Rest, and you can go and contribute to that and be a part of helping the Garmin's rest this year. And so we're really excited to be able to do that. Our, our elders unanimously agreed that this was the right thing to do, and we're excited about being a part of this. Now, some of you might be thinking, I've been working for 20 years and nobody's given me anything like that. Well, I'm really sorry. You probably do deserve a break. But I, I, I just want you to know, as somebody who's been up and close and personal on this thing for a long time, I'm not responsible for you. I'm responsible, our elders are responsible for the way we care for Colby and Annie. And we want to be able to stand before the Lord with integrity and, and um, honesty and say, hey, we have, we have sought to treat them as well as we possibly can for the work that they do. Now, he hates this. He's probably super uncomfortable right now wherever he is listening to this. Uh, he hates this. I, I, in fact, I noticed he pawned off his duties to come back up here later on Jamie so he didn't have to stand up here afterwards. But, uh, uh, but, but we do love them, and I think uh, we want to go a long way to express our love and appreciation for them. Actually, I didn't say this in the first service, but Kate Steele uh, who many of you know, is going to serve as our uh, liaison. So don't come talk to me if you want to talk about the Garmin sabbatical or their rest. Uh, Kate Steele is the person who's, who's the liaison between the Garmins and our, our elders to make that a great experience for them. So uh, see Kate Steele if you've got questions or uh, interest in that. And then the last thing in verse 18, look down at verse 18 here. This is a, an interesting moment in the text where like we're being instructed, right, by the writer of Hebrews, but then all of a sudden, he pleads with the reader. He says, pray for us. For we're sure that we have a clear conscience. He's saying, like, God, we're doing the best we can here. We're sure of it. We know we're right before the Lord. Desiring to act honorably in all things. And I think I can say honestly about our pastors. Like, we are, we are trying to do this with a clear conscience. We're in a, the very best way possible. We're trying to be earnest in the way we lead and act and lead honorably. Verse 19, I urge you, the more earnestly to do this in order that we may be restored to you sooner. So the, the, we're asking, just like these leaders were asking of the Hebrew Christians, for you to pray for us. Like earnestly, in a heartfelt way, pray for us to 
to walk closely with Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith as we continue to try to shape and lead this congregation. Help us not to fall prey to the temptations that so many leaders fall prey to, that we could help one another stay strong in Christ and that we could help lead this church into future prosperity um, by by our sacrificial leadership and living. Jesus has become a a faithful and good shepherd to us, and, and we want to model that kind of shepherding to you. I love the end of or this verse 4 in 1 Peter 5, where he says, he says we should, how we should act, we should be examples to the flock. And then in verse 4 he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what's being said to the elder, to the pastor, is that there's a day when the real shepherd's going to show up. We're not the real shepherd. We're just like under shepherds. We're just taking care of God's sheep. We're the ones that have been assigned and entrusted to this work. But one day he's going to show up and we're going to give an account to him. And when we give an account to him, he will deliver to us who have been faithful the unfading crown of glory. This is a reminder to us that Jesus is the real shepherd here. Jesus is the real senior pastor. Jesus is the real leader that we are all meant to mimic, follow after, and look to. So, Christian, follow your leaders, obey them, and submit to them, in so much as they follow, obey, and submit to Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you, we trust in you, we hope in you with all of our heart. We want to be good leaders, those of us who are responsible for that here, those of us who are elders. We want to give you praise and thank you for Annie and Colby and their sacrificial love for this congregation where they have set aside so much of their life in order to be good sacrificial servants here to this congregation. We know that the weight that they bear is heavy and we don't even know the beginning of it. So God, thank you for them. We pray that you would bless them by this conversation today. We pray that they would feel encouraged and strengthened by what's been said. And we pray that in the coming months as we seek to give them some rest and relax, uh, relaxation and restoration, that you, would, that you would meet them in that and, and, and bring about all kinds of spiritual vitality, health, and joy into their life and household. God, we pray for their girls. God, please allow their girls to treasure and cherish you, to love you with all their heart by what they, what they see in their mom and dad and the way they see us relate to their mom and dad. God, will you do great things in their household, we ask. Will you bless them beyond measure? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.